and one and two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Sir Nigel Shadbolt. He is a leading researcher in artificial intelligence and was one of the originators of the interdisciplinary field of web science. He is principal of Jesus College Oxford, a professor of computer science at the University of Oxford, and a visiting professor of artificial intelligence at the University of Southampton. And he also happens to be the co-founder of the Open Data Institute, and today he will tell us the backstory on how the ODI was created. Hello, Sir Nigel, and thank you for joining us. Great to be with you, Richard. So you and Sir Tim Berners-Lee officially launched the Open Data Institute in 2013. However, the ODI as an initiative was announced in 2012, but... On the ODI website, it says that it was in 2009, three years prior, that Gordon Brown, the UK Prime Minister at the time, charged you and Sir Tim Berners-Lee to transform the access to public sector information, and I'd like to start our story there. Can you tell us a little bit about what led Gordon Brown to A, take on this undertaking, and B, how it came about that he chose you and Sir Tim Berners-Lee to lead this undertaking? Well, uh, it's already incredible to imagine it's well over a decade. Um, but back in uh, 2009, there'd already been work in the UK government to explore um, the potential use and power of information in government. There was, in fact, a rather interesting report commissioned during uh, Tony Blair's uh, prime ministership on the power of information review. People like Tom Steinberg was involved in that, in, in that effort. And there was a well-known civil data advocate. But there were also other things happening around about the same time. Um, back in, well, my own involvement, I have to trace back to the early 2000s. And the awareness that many of us working in artificial intelligence uh, uh, came to, that data at scale on the web was an extraordinary new resource. And if we could imagine a web of linked data that would be like an extended database that you could do all sorts of extraordinary things with. And in about 2004 five, uh, we were exploring this notion at Southampton University, where I was then in my, in my group with others around me, people like Wendy Hall. We were looking at this whole concept, and we had a project where we were just seeing how far we could take this technology and this approach. And we had a lot of discussion with Tim Berners-Lee uh, in his MIT lab, uh, who, of course, was advocating for uh, the semantic web, along with people like Jim Hendler. And that vision of bringing together web, at, web data at scale was one of the things that inspired us. And in the project I led at Southampton, a project called ACT, the Advanced Knowledge Technologies Project, we had a pilot that had been commissioned by a small part of government, government uh, the Office for Public Sector Information, um, and they were actually charged with enacting the responsibility to publish as much as possible the information that government generated. And back in 2005 and six, we did this work with them to show how semantic web standards might actually operate. And we brought together 
a whole range of data sets from national and local government showed how that might work. And Tim was aware of this work at the time. Uh, we had actually got this work um, to a state where it was reported into government, into parliament. But you know what? There it might have just stayed. Uh, a nice report written in 2007. We'd already banged our heads against the problem of getting all of this data assembled out of the various authorities who had it in various data silos. But then something, you can never kind of anticipate these things happened. Tim had uh, lunch with the Prime Minister. At the time, the Prime Minister was Gordon Brown. And he was, in fact, uh, over, Tim was over for one of the meetings of this wonderful uh, order of merit um, group of individuals that the Queen confers this honour on. And Tim was over for a lunch. And uh, the Prime Minister knew that he was in the UK and had called him over to, uh, to, have, dinner, to have lunch with him in, in Chequers. And there they discussed a whole variety of opportunities about how the future of technology might influence and affect government. And I think Gordon Brown at that moment famously asked, it was May 2009, what can the web, what can we do here to make the best of the web? And Tim disarmingly said, put your data on it. And remarkably, from that moment on, it was literally a whirly gig. On the 22nd of May, Tim and I went along to number 10, met with the Prime Minister, met with the, uh, uh, Jeremy Haywood, who was the head of, his, uh, of the civil service at the time, and began to describe what a, was then called a making public data public project might look like. And that's pretty well from there on in. We were appointed information, commissioner, information advisors to the UK government. And, uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. We were given this wonderful period of time of charging around with prime ministerial authority to try and find the non-personal data that government was collecting and publish it out there. Was it difficult to have those preliminary conversations with agencies and departments to convince them? Like, it sounds as though it was, it was a pretty easy sell with the prime minister. But a lot of times these conversations don't translate well to the bureaucracy. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, in though back then, there was actually quite a lot of appetite. As I said, the ground had been well prepared in advance by these various reports that had started to show just how much data was becoming available, a great deal of it collected by government, and even more of it starting to be held in some machine-readable form or other. But what would it mean to bring it all together? Now, this was a uh, Labour government that was uh, looking for new ideas and innovations. There was a sense of also a range of public servants, civil servants, both senior and, 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 and middle ranking and ground roots activists who were beginning to show what could be done with this data. And I think with prime ministerial mandate, and I would have to say, in all honesty, um, Tim Berners-Lee carries a certain cachet. And it was one of those wonderful moments where a lot of ministers were a lot more interested in meeting Tim <laughs> <laughs> than probably Tim, you know, uh, uh, would have uh, uh, the other way around. You know what I mean? Uh, and so we got to meet this range of secretaries of state who were really up for this, uh, um, this exercise and wondered what it might mean to turn some of their data over. So the real question was, what data sets? And the, the second question was, what would it look like? So we were also commissioned to try and set up our data.gov.uk portal by the January of 2010. I mean, this was six months. So uh, it was, it was very, very fast paced. But there were 
there was low-hanging fruit. Um, some of the low-hanging fruit turned out to be harder to pick than we might have thought, but that was part of the joy of those early months. It was that completely self-evidently obvious data that should have been published. What were some of those low-hanging fruits for you guys, and what were some of the, um, the ones that were more difficult than you thought would be to publish online? Well, I think you begin with um, transport was a good example where it would have seemed obvious that we should be able to get the data pertaining to fares and timetables and where the trains and buses and so forth were. Uh, but through the process of um, uh, privatization and various franchising that had happened, um, a lot of these weren't nationally run services. They were, they were aggregated out. Um, and very often when those franchises had been written, the data had gone with the franchise and people hadn't thought that the data was something that should be kept in some sense in public ownership. But over time and through um, clear demonstrations of what was possible, we were able to get increasing amounts of that data released. It never came in one fell swoop, I'd have to say. And those early um, first 800 or so data sets were really where we could we could find them, you know, the spending data of government's own data for its own administration were some obvious places to go to. The money that was spent in local authorities was another obvious place to go to. Uh, and some data that should have been obvious was harder than we did. Well, we knew it would be hard. This was the data related, for example, to spatial um, geography. The Ordnance Survey data, the United Kingdom's mapping agency, had always been required to generate revenue from its operation, even though it was largely funded by the taxpayer. And when you have these um, incentives which are sort of set up against one another, of course, it can be difficult for them to imagine where they move to on a model that allows them to keep providing this extraordinary quality of service with no income coming from the products they were selling. So hitting that balance between high resolution, medium resolution products, what could and couldn't be made available, much of this was the conversation we were in in those early days. Well, I'm. I'm Sad to report that, at least in Canada, that conversation is still taking place. We are one of the few sort of G7 or G8 countries that does not publish its postal code data as open data in, in Canada here. So it's a, it's, a, it's a battle that we keep going on for that same reason that Canada Post sees it as a revenue stream for them. And it's, a, I guess, a big chunk of that revenue and it's just not made public yet. It's really unfortunate. Well, there you can intrude on, a, on, a, on an area of personal grief. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we got our postcodes for sure, uh, but the postcode address file, the actual list of legal addresses in the UK, is not a publicly owned product, despite the fact that it was put together over many years whilst the post office was in national ownership by uh, delivery uh, post people actually taking parcels to doors and the whole thing built up in an extraordinarily uh, careful and interesting way. Um, that detailed level of address file was privatized with the privatization of the post office. And I would say that is one of those particular data sets, which Tim and I have always regarded as part of our national data infrastructure that should be in public ownership. So we don't have everything there we should have either. And um, it does speak to the fact that making clear why these are much more valuable as bits of our infrastructure. And that's not to say you can't generate a valued service off the top of that data, but the base level infrastructure 
data is best held as a public good. I completely agree with you. And, and, uh, and I think we could have a really long conversation just about that. But I really want to stick with the Open Data Institute here and keep myself on track. So you've put in all that work with data.gov.uk. You've got some momentum going. You're having some great meetings with department ministers and so on. But eventually, something must have happened that led to the ODI announcement in 2012 that an independent body such as the Open Data Institute needed to be created. What happened between that 2010 moment where you launched data.gov.uk to the ODI? Well, we had a, we had a, a lot of data being released, as I say, um, and we were beginning to see the the, the, the real momentum behind that. Um, and indeed, um, the Prime Minister at that time, Gordon Brown, was sufficiently convinced by this approach that he was wanting to set up essentially an institute to investigate that opportunity and more widely the opportunity that web would offer. And there was such an announcement to set up an institute for web science, actually, um, then framed in um, 2010 budget in the, in the budget early in that year. But what happened then was an, was an election and uh, the prime minister of the day and the government of the day gave way to a coalition government, uh, David Cameron's government in 2010. Now, what was really interesting about the power of the open data message is that it survived transition between political parties. And I think we've seen this in different contexts at different times in different uh, geographies. There are lots of reasons for doing open data. And for some people, the issues around uh, social value creation outweigh the issues around economic value creation or innovation around the data for entrepreneurial needs or the generation of the data for a set of purposes to do with accountability and transparency. And all of these are different and legitimate reasons to do open data. And I think that what, uh, what we saw uh, with, the, with, the, with the move to a new government was actually, in many respects, a continued commitment to the open data journey. And that was really something very special. Of course, at the time that transition happened, um, budgetary promises hadn't been enacted. Uh, there was uh, a narrative, a new narrative around austerity and not being as much money in the public purse as there had been. So certain things were being cut. And one of the early um, um, victims of that was the, uh, was the initiative announced by, by Gordon Brown. But there was always a conversation around, can we do something with the essential power of open data. The open data principles that have been published in, uh, in November of 2009 were carried through um, and reinforced by the coalition government. Tim and I were appointed to the Public Sector Transparency Board, which was a major committee within government overseen by the Cabinet Office to take the coalition government's proposals forward. And we had many additional releases of data. For example, the, the police.uk site was uh, the uh, site where reported crime was published out for the first time, an extraordinary step. Um, we had new releases of data around transport and energy and health. And uh, we were beginning to have a conversation around the opportunities for um, value creation of all types inherent in data. And that really began with. Um, 
people in uh, two departments of government within the cabinet office where Francis Maud was the minister within the business and science and universities ministry where, where David Willits was our minister of science and universities, but also with um, people who saw the opportunity from the centre of government who had already been there in previous governments and the continuity there in our civil service was was really helpful. So although the special advisors may change, the, uh, the, the, the civil servants remain. So people like Jeremy Haywood, where he was now advising the Prime Minister, David Cameron, um, people who had taken over in a special advisor role, people like Rowan Silver, were very convinced and committed to this whole notion of um, the power of information in government and how it could be released and used. And so I think that uh, we, we began to see over that um, uh, two years as we developed the coalition government's commitment to open data and commitments in around that, the beginning of an idea. And Tim and I said, look, you know, we think we can take a huge amount of what we wanted to do from the outset in understanding how to make open data work to the maximum effect and do it through an open data institute. Let's simply call it an open data institute and take that as its locus. Um, the, the enthusiasm for setting up startups within um, the, London, the London technology ecosystem was also something that David Cameron was very interested in. So we, we basically got uh, uh, permission to develop a proposal to go into government, uh, which was approved in the budget uh, a couple of years later in 2012 to begin. In fact, it was 2011, 2012 was when the actual uh, announcements were being made. And we were canvassing uh, that first round of interest in establishing an open data institute. This is something that's very near and dear to me in that the government spends a lot of money, assigns a lot of resources to creating and publishing open data sets but oftentimes puts very little attention in activating those data sets, whether it's be through marketing or whatever. And I like the term that I like to use is that these open data sets are collecting digital dust. No one really knows about them. No one's really using them. So it sounds to me as though the ODI was created to be more of a, almost like a catalyst to bring yeah. together people around open data and see how it could be used. The vision we had originally when I was writing the business case um, to go into government was around exactly that, finding the value in open data where value is understood in the broadest possible sense, social, economic, administrative, personal, collective, national, local. And I think it was about animating it and being a convening agency. And in particular, not being a part of government but being a interestedly disinterested third party convener, <laughs> that was one of the that was one of the re the things that we've start we we've really tried to frame in the DNA of the ODI from the outset. And just as a matter of historical correction, actually the ODI was launched in uh, in 2012 at the end of 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about the work? So the the announcement is made in 2012. You launch. Uh, it was made in the budget of 2011. The budget of November 2011 was announced, but then we had to get down and write the business case and get on and think about what it would mean to set such a thing up. So can you tell us some of that work that was required? And, and this is more of, I guess, a mechanical question for you that people may not understand what's required in building something like an ODI. There are considerations that need to be made. Can you tell us that work that needed to be done between sort of that announcement and the budget to the official launch 
mm-hmm. that you had in late 2012, the people that you had to bring together, you said you had to create a business case, uh, yeah. things of that nature. You needed infrastructure, I'm assuming as well. Like, can you tell us that a little bit? Well, it was a busy time. I was, um, I, I, I was both aided and abetted by, by, by some of those same um, civil servants who had been there through a number of administrations who believed in the, uh, in the possibility of the open data journey. That was, that's always has been and continues to be something very, very uh, precious and important. Um, of course, they have to be objective. You have to make the case based on its merits. And again, remember, this is a time when government was looking to uh, make quite a wide range of public sector savings. So to be saying, well, here's an area where you should spend more. So the business case was very much around uh, what, what this thing could catalyze. And you use that, use that phrase yourself, which I think is a very good one. What could it actually catalyze? And I think if we, if we, if we look back, um, it was really, well, we had one or two things going for us. One thing we had going for us was a genuine sense that um, open data was literally uh, beginning to uncover all sorts of interesting opportunities. We'd be, we were able to show that within over the 24 months since the emergence of, of various open government initiatives around the world, there'd been a huge amount achieved, you know, what data was now available. That we had seen um, commitments from the then Chancellor, George Osborne, that uh, they wanted the UK to become a world leader in open data. I mean, these are literally written into the speeches of the time. Um, that their narrative was very much around the economic impact of open data, uh, that it would be profound. Uh, that we had a, a world-class uh, um, set of capabilities in this area and that we should be pulling this together to facilitate the use of open data both within government but also to imagine how it could extend to the commercial sphere so where commercial organizations could use open data from government to either build new products or could even entertain making some of their own data open for the purposes of innovation. And there was also in the background this notion of of, of leadership. Um, The Open Government Partnership um, uh, was based around the notion that governments who were similarly inclined to be releasing data could be making common cause on this. Um, And the the excitement around, uh, remember, this excitement was also around the fact that London was being seen to be increasingly capable of generating its own um, software startups, its own creative startups. Uh, the whole area of East London was taking over this, this feeling for being very entrepreneurial. And the other thing was happening was the Olympic Games. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was, well, that turned out to be both a, a blessing and a curse. It was wonderful in some <laughs> respects. We had, we had the eyes of the world on us. Uh, we had uh, Tim's wonderful tweet at the opening ceremony this is for everyone to remind people that, uh, th- that the web was for everyone. Um, but it was not the time to be looking for property in London. <laughs> there was a huge amount <laughs> of, uh, of, of, of real interest. Uh, everybody was setting up. It was one of the toughest things was actually just to find and commission the actual place and space. And I was very fortunate to have a, a colleague who I'd worked with in the past, uh, Tim Organ, who came from a background, a commercial background, who was an extraordinarily good project manager in helping me pull this together as we thought about how we would bootstrap a very significant organization 
from lots of components, but they weren't components convened in a physical place. So when you're putting something as novel as the Open Data Institute together, and even some of that work you were doing back in 2009 and 2010 and putting data.gov.uk together, was there any kind of pushback? I'm not going to ask you, you know, if there were specific individuals, but was there any kind of pushback at all? It seems as though it was a pretty easy ride, but maybe even the media, was there people that were thinking this is a waste of time and money or that they didn't believe in the initiative whatsoever? Or for the most part, was it easy sailing for you? No, it was far from easy sailing. I mean, I, th I, th I think if, if it sounds uh, like it was, that's kind of definitely the, uh, the effect that says under the surface, there was a huge amount of thrashing about trying to get things done. Um, look, I mean, we, would, uh, we spent quite a lot of our time enumerating the various principles uh, um, that we had heard about why this was a terrible idea, why you shouldn't do it. You know, everybody's got their own lists of the favorite excuses for not doing open data. You know, it's not good enough yet. You shouldn't possibly uh, uh, trust people to use this data. They might misuse it in some way we can't anticipate. Um, or um, this is a threat to our potential national security, or this will be used in some sense to, uh, to criticize our current policy. So there are any number of reasons why people might fear uh, releasing some types of data. And some types of data are, are genuinely challenging. I mean, they, they, they do ask questions of whether or not the performance of a public service or the execution of a particular function or duty is working as well as it might. But we've been through many, so many of those arguments about why, on balance, getting this information out there. And of course, with the current pandemic, we're living through it again about all the data that relates to scientific advice and guidance and the data we have around that, about what it is that we really need to know and why there may be, of course, certain sensitivities about releasing that. So it certainly wasn't easygoing. And for those leaders of organizations who were incentivized to produce, to make their organizations work, by sweating the asset, by literally having to sell products, it was a very difficult journey. And in some cases, um, I think red lines were drawn uh, and wherever possible, uh, we uh, were keen to try and reimagine a future in which that line could be taken out altogether because you could reimagine how value would generate or flow from the data that was released, not simply by selling it. I, I want to change gears a little bit here because and this is, the, this is how I've written my question, and I'm not quite sure how to do a good segue, so I'm just going to dive right into it, which is when you conceptualize an idea and eventually launch it, you think it's going to go in a certain direction, but over the course of time, things can change, right? The, the vision can change, the work changes, the, the scale changes, even the scope can change. Did that happen for the ODI? Like, what, what is it that you had in mind in 2012? Is it any different? than what it is today? I think any organization uh, evolves and develops in ways that some stay true to the original vision, others move beyond it or have to accommodate to uh, new situations, uh, new contexts. So I think that when we started, um, and also you're building, we were kind of a startup, right? I mean, there we were incubating startups. We were a startup ourselves. Uh, <laughs> the blind leading the blind to a certain well, extent. Well, yeah. <laughs> but uh, uh, at least perhaps a one-eyed uh, uh, individual. But you, you've, got, you've got a definite sense that you won't have all the answers 
and that you may even make some false starts. Uh, but on average, what we found time and time again was that the power of the idea was just that. It would cut through and you would find value, not always where you thought. So there has always been, I think, an interesting balance um, uh, between the creation of economic value on the one hand and, if you like, social and civic value on the other. We see these arguments being played out in in the very broadest intellectual terms at the moment, in terms of whether, you know, what do we privilege? Do we privilege people? Do we privilege the environment? Do we privilege sustainability? Do we privilege absolute growth? And of course, we know that there's got to be some balance between those. And I think that it's also quite easy when you're a relatively small organization growing to uh, lock into those things you're succeeding at. So it can be the challenges to kind of remain broad, remain still giving some of your resources to things that perhaps might appear riskier or a little bit out of where the current success is being had. So we have, I think, variously worked in um, civic society applications, in much more commercial um, uh, settings. We've worked in in-country and out-of-country and, and being sure that we're able to uh, work with our out-of-country investments and partners in, in a balanced way. Again, a relatively small organization has to be quite, quite careful about that. But as we have grown and as we've learned more, I think we have really found a way and tried hard to reflect on what's working for us. And we have plenty of critical friends. And I think that, I mean that in the kindest sense, you know, people will sort of say, well, you know, um, do you, do you want to spend all of your time in this sector? Or what about uh, looking at a challenge in this context? Or how do you evaluate your success in this piece of out-of-country work? And our various sponsors, and over the years, we've been fortunate to have extraordinary support from organizations like Amidia, and now Luminate, and others who have really believed in the organization have also helped us on that learning process. Are there any particular initiatives or impacts that's come out of the ODI that you're particularly proud of? I think we're particularly proud of, of I mean, it sounds... You love all your children equally, uh, right? You know what? I mean, <laughs> occasionally you have to know, uh, well, the other thing is that some of your children just grow up and need to move on. And that's the other thing that happens. And we've seen that with a number of our startups where we've, we've been thrilled to see just how, how they've gone on to kind of uh, really shape their ecosystem. We now talk about the ODI as an organization that is trying to shape and develop a trusted data ecosystem. And that's something I will talk about perhaps if we get a chance, which is this this fact that we aren't just about open data any longer, that we talk also about the full data spectrum. But I mean just coming back to that, yeah, we're proud. I'm I'm very I mean I'm very proud, for example, of the work that we do in um in, in training and our training work, particularly our work on training the trainer, where we've been able to take courses and, and, and insights and material and really get them out there by training a cohort of trainers who then go in and try and amplify the ability to ta- explain to people just how open data works, what its basic axioms and principles are. I'm proud of the work that we've done in sectors like uh, the recent work we've been doing on, on, uh, on fitness and health and well-being in the UK has unlocked a whole set of data assets that, again, largely not regarded. And suddenly you realize that there we have all this extraordinary information not harnessed together about the places that people can go to stay fit, to be fit, to get fit. Uh, Everything from the availability of public play fields that you can book 
through to um, um, when particular classes are being held by various uh, local authorities. There's just so much still to do around any particular area. And then, of course, there's the stuff we did around uh, healthcare, the work we did on trying to, to identify savings and potential savings in prescription data. Yeah, there's, there's lots to talk about. Well, what the ODI has managed to do is, is very impressive. And, and we, as an open government and open data practitioners, we definitely thank you because it's very easy to point to such an institution and say, you know, th- this is a great thing to emulate. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that, that ecosystem that you mentioned a moment ago, which is like, you've been in this conversation now for 15 or 20 years. You're one of the first people that even, you know, created the concept essentially to a certain extent. Are you happy with the progress that we've made so far, either in terms of successes or even pacing? Did you think that perhaps even by 2020, we would have made more progress in this conversation? I think we have. I think it just is an ongoing process. I, I, I mean, our latest announcement with, 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 with our joint partnership with Microsoft is a good example where some of those reasons that we're now working um, on and around have been reasons that have been there for a good amount of time, but you just have to revisit and revisit and restate and restate the case. And I think many organizations, public and private, can look at this and say, well, we've been doing this for a good while now. And sometimes it can feel like, you know, one step forward, two steps back, or two steps forward, one step back, if you're lucky. Um, Because nothing is necessarily secured forever. Um, People can take different views on whether or not data should be uh, constantly um, um, made available. I think we have really moved on to a point where it's hard to simply step away from the open data manifesto. Um, But there is not always an understanding that to maintain a high quality open data infrastructure requires, like any other infrastructure, investment. Mm-hmm. There was too often a view that it was about publishing some data you happen to have available, and that was, as, that was a good way to have gotten to, rather than saying, in a modern 21st century society, what is the data we actually need to have, and what would it take to fashion and engineer that to be available? And that's a, that, 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 that proactive design stance on open data is still something there's a huge amount of work to do on. You, you were mentioning about investments and, and one of the big, and I'm not at your level, obviously, I don't see the world from, from 30,000 feet up as you do when it comes to these kinds of conversations, but at the grassroots on the ground, I see a lot of great projects and civic technology projects that are powered by open data, but for whatever reason, there's no, there's no investment even from government or venture capitalists or angels or whatever, and they stay in the sort of that hackathon weekend stage and it never, and they just sort of fall off the cliff and they never get to that next level. Is is there anything you can recommend or advise, or maybe it's a wish list item on how to take that civic technology that's powered by open data even to that next level? Yeah. And I think that's a really great point. I think we have not always found a way to provide sustainability for those initiatives. And, And very often, of course, these initiatives are brilliant grassroots and they're often hyper local they often are solving a, a problem for a, a, a particular community or particular locale and 
again, often the, uh, certainly in the UK, national and um, local government has been an area that has been really under the cosh for many years. And the idea that we should reinvest so that we can actually make more of these, uh, these local civic data uh, initiatives. I don't think we do understand how to bring that into our public estate. Um, and, you know, occasionally some just break through off the back of their own uh, intrinsic brilliance. But I don't think we have a very sustainable way of doing that. I mean, one thing we do in the ODI, we do have the notion of these open data challenges of incubating startups. And a good chunk of them are civil society. And indeed, the uh, again, the just because it's the most recent one, the Microsoft announcement is going to be focusing on a lot of civic society applications. But the philanthropy has got to be more than just one shot. It's got to be there for the, for, for the long term. And we have to think about how we reincorporate some of this stuff back into the, the fundamental process of governance. Um, it's a little bit like a similar challenge that's happening to us in, in science and engineering, where we know there's great crowdsource citizen science going in, but how do you really bring it in sustainably to, to help it uh, uh, really feed uh, the main stock of activity. So our time is wrapping up here, and I want to give you an opportunity because you're you're involved. I have no doubts with many different parts of civil society, open data, open government, technology, AI. Is there anything right now that you're working on uh, that you'd like to tell us about, or anything in, in particular insightful that you'd like to share that we didn't get a chance to go over? Well, I think one thing that we are seeing emerge is this, um, is this concern around the balance between the very large platforms who have so much of the data and us as individual citizens and consumers. In 2011, I was working with the UK government on another project. We called it My Data. And this was about trying to get data from a whole range of commercial uh, uh, suppliers into a form that that could benefit users directly. And again, in the Open Data Institute, we, 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 we sometimes say, well, you know, people say, but you're the, we're the ODI, <laughs> but what are you? Are you the Open Data Institute or the Open Data Institute? And I think that that, that actually uh, speaks to a, a real um, extension of our interest, which is into the whole data spectrum from open to closed to shared, because we have to make sure that our data ecosystem works across all these strands of data and understand how open data as a foundation supports other strains and varieties. And there will be reasons why certain data has to remain either um, uh, carefully shared or privately uh, maintained. And I think in thinking about that whole balance between personal information assets, between uh, the interests of citizens and consumers in the data that is increasingly held at scale by platforms. The work that we're doing now here in Oxford is around this idea we, we, we describe, in, and I described to some extent in, in a recent lecture I gave remotely again <laughs> for the World Wide <laughs> Web Conference in Taiwan, uh, architectures for autonomy. So what do we need to be able to exercise self-determination in this world as individuals or as groups of interested individuals? And it's about institutional arrangements. It's about the idea potentially of this thing we call data trusts, where data is held in common on behalf of a range of individuals, 
uh, with, with, with trustees, understanding uh, how to mutualize the benefits of that data. It might have to do with technical architectures that relate to new ways of holding the data much closer to the individual who originates it. And this is, again, partly reflected in the proposals that Tim's been making for his social link data project, mm-hmm. SOLID. Um, and I think across this expanse of opportunities from technical to institutional, uh, we are going to see more interest around re-decentralization. Uh, that is not to say it becomes a babel of, 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 of non-interacting parts, but that you have the ability to take components out and reconfigure them. And I think that is a very interesting opportunity. I would finally say, though, that I think the big, one of the big challenges for us is to understand what it means to build equitable, large-scale data infrastructures that work for the many, not the few. Uh, what does that actually look like? And it's a great way to sort of end and wrap up the conversation as obviously COVID-19 and contact tracing and, and tracking has really brought this to a larger conversation and on a larger scale on how we can do it safely, how we can do it effectively, that it helps obviously mitigate the spread of COVID-19, but at the same time, safeguards the privacy of the individual. So I'm sure that those that are listening right now to this podcast are feel very warm in their bellies right now that you're part of that conversation and making sure that, um, that we're, we're, we're safeguarded. So thank you. Well, thank you, Richard. It's been great to talk to you. And also, I know that Canada in particular has been a leading light at various times, both individually uh, and at a federal and a citywide level and, and community-wide level in, in this push for open data too. Thank you. Oh, well, we're, well thank you. <laughs> we're, we're getting into a, a cycle of saying thank you. So I'm going to wrap it up right now and, <laughs> and be the last person to thank you for this interview and giving your time and, and the, the insightful answers that you gave. And, and of course, as usual, I want to thank our audience for listening. And please leave us a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.